for your ears only. Hello and welcome to For Your Ears Only. The audio series that takes some deep dives into all things podcasting. I'm Lance Dan. And I'm Martin Spinelli. And this week, let's discuss scripted podcasting. Lance, I thought we were going to talk about narrative audio. Uh, I'd rather talk about audio drama. No, no, it's pod fiction, I'm sure. Okay, let's just settle it all and just talk about radio drama for a bit. <laughs> what, radio drama? Oh, right, all right. Now, okay, so what we're doing there is we're playing around with all the names that are in the podcasting space that people are trying to call fictional shows. Mm. Will that do? Um, and there's this battle for naming rights going on as people try to decide what to call the new form as it develops. Yeah, people are very, very possessive about names and what things should be named. Take the, okay, let's take podcasts in the first place. It's, it's a portmanteau, isn't it? Yeah, it refers to a technology that very few people use anymore. And that name is rather like the QWERTY keyboard. It's gone out of date. It's referring to a technology we don't use. The show today is about audio drama and a while ago I went online and just asked amongst the audio drama community said oh, what should we call this what terms are we comfortable with I mean you had producers weighing in you had writers you had podcasters and and amongst the producers often they didn't know what to call their own work so that's why is there this struggle for a new name for a form that's been around since the 1920s? Is it the sign of something coming apart? Or the sign of something coming together? Because there's this idea over the last four or five years, you've had a lot of shows like The Black Tights, Welcome to Night Vale, The Bright Sessions, The Message, The Truth, We're Alive. They're kind of these new shows that are sort of speaking of a new form. And the producers, for those producers, they feel they're kind of doing something new that hasn't been done before. It's coming out of nowhere for them. And as Neil Verma said... Any time a movement's undergoing change, a fight occurs over the naming rights. And that's actually a brilliant sign, because if it was sterile, then no one would be arguing. No one would care. It shows that energy is happening. And I think through our research, we've defined uh, a new form of audio drama, podcast drama. That's going to be the one name that will unite them all and sort the whole fight out. Could we call it native podcast drama? No, I've called it podcast drama in the book. <laughs> so we're not calling it that. Podcast drama it is. No, this is why this is an exciting moment in, in history. This is why I'm, you know, I've been genuinely excited by what's going on in the last two or three years now. Because if we take audio drama as a route, then really when we mean audio drama, for so long we've actually just meant radio drama because that's all there's been is radio drama was the dominant way of telling stories with sound with actors and when you meant radio drama in the english-speaking world you kind of meant the bbc because they were in the english-speaking world they were the only people putting this stuff out on any scale with some tiny exceptions like in the states up through the 1940s you had what we call the golden age of radio in which figures like Hyman Brown and Orson Welles strode really large the OTR scene yeah, and but it's, it's passed but there was a real and, and there's a real stigma around it which is why I think people are trying to avoid those terms around radio drama but the BBC has kept the fire burning with 350 plays a year you know these plays having five figure budgets bringing up so many great names they have kept radio drama alive as a form 
not just alive as a form, it's thoroughly integrated into British life. British middle class life, definitely. Yeah. I mean, like I as a kid, you know, I was, I was brought up with Listen With Mother uh, and the Archer theme tune marked Bedtime at, yeah. at do, 5 do, past do, 7. Do, 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 do. And it's still kind of like, you know, my kids still know not to go into the kitchen and not talk to their mother between 5 past 7 and 20 past 7 <laughs> because they've been interesting important uh, Ambridge information. Those of you who have never heard the Archers because you don't live in Britain, you are in for a treat when the BBC one day makes available its 75-year archive of the happenings in Ambridge. But, I mean, um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is an important part in the development of many radio producers. And, and it even found its way over to me growing up as a kid in New Jersey. I remember getting for Christmas one year from my parents this fantastic gift, the box set of the cassettes of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, which I listened to over and over and over again. But somehow all that has changed now. There's something new going on, something exciting is bubbling up from the podcast space that's represented by all those shows. And we, as academics, are going to take that new and exciting and divergent thing and hammer the life out of it by defining its identity. That's what we're doing, right? Yeah, let's do that. So radio drama has been around for, say, almost 100 years. Mm. If you look at those 100 years, there's been very few moments, very few kind of standout movements for the form, like you'd have, say, in cinema. So there's been no radio drama equivalent to noir or no new wave. So why is that, Lance? Well, possibly because radio is like an ephemeral medium. It's, It's very hard to look at the history of radio because it's all gone off into the ether. Or possibly because radio drama has been, up until this point, so localized in the UK. And... Possibly because academics haven't written about it a lot. Yeah, I mean, certainly not in the same way to the same depth that they have about cinema or TV. But now we've got all these new shows coming into the podcast space, and they're different. It feels like there's a movement. And it's a movement whose identity is quite removed from that of radio drama. Yeah, and this is one of your really significant contributions to the book. One of your many, <laughs> one say. of your many significant contributions to the book. The three different ways in which podcast drama is different. Can you tell us about those? Well, firstly, I identify the producers of the shows as coming from a very different background to radio drama producers. And secondly, the works tend to be really genre-based to appeal to a millennial listener. And thirdly. They always seem to have a framing device, a kind of context or or something in the format that gives a reason for the show to exist. So what we're going to do is discuss some of these shows as great examples of these different traits. And then we're going to talk about where audio drama is going since we finished the book. So first of all, who are the producers of these podcast dramas? Well, they tend to be American. Um, That means they don't carry with them the cultural baggage of the BBC and the expectations for audio and drama that all that implies. They didn't grow up listening to the archers in the kitchen with their mother for example. Yeah, they grew up with cinema. They grew up with television and film. And even their idea of how dialogue works comes from cinematic traditions. So for them, it is revolutionary because they don't have this history. That's Yeah, that's what uh, Alex Bloomberg says about Homecoming, that it's a revolutionary work. But Neil Verma, who's an academic who works in this film, point counters by saying, well, your work can't be revolutionary if you don't know what you're revolting against. And a lot of these people aren't steeped in the history of radio drama, so they don't know this background at all. And in some ways that could be read as a negative, but also I kind of see that as a very positive thing because 
they're not encumbered with all that weight of trying to be original and trying to be new against 100 years of history. Yeah, how often can you start with a clean slate? It's hugely liberating to not be encumbered by all of that history and that awareness of the past. And you kind of you kind of get beyond this modernist mantra of make it new and you have a fresh start that all these young podcast drama producers are just taking. And a really great case study of this podcast drama attachment to cinema is The Truth by Jonathan Mitchell. So, Martin, what is The Truth? The Truth is an anthology of improvised podcast dramas that have to deal with um, New York hipster life and aliens and robots and the neuroses of hipsters, aliens and robots, essentially. But importantly, a lot of, uh, for our discussion, a lot of his influences have come from cinema, haven't they? I wanted to recreate the speech that he heard in cinema within The Truth. Yeah, it's a, a very naturalistic, verite style of speech. That kind of naturalistic performance gives you, gives the performances a less pronounced quality that sort of really sets it apart from what you'd get in traditional radio drama. In traditional radio drama, the enunciation is key Partly because you have to talk over the washing machine that's on in the room where the radio is playing out so that everyone can hear every word. Whereas earbud listening, you can take it, you can dial it right down and it can be more natural, more mumbling. Exactly. And it sounds much, much less stagey than uh, the afternoon play on Radio 4, for example. So, Martin, you actually interviewed Jonathan Mitchell for the book, didn't you? I did. I did. And importantly, uh, and this is the key question for every interview you did, um, what was his apartment like? <laughs> it was very nice, Lance. Very nice apartment in New York. Yeah, I'm noting that in the book. More to more pertinently, what did he say his influences were? Okay, so um, he talked about his influences being experimental music like Frank Zappa and film. Here's Jonathan Mitchell talking about his influences. One of my favorite records I, uh, of my entire childhood was the story of Star Wars. And it was all the sound from the movie. And a, a few years later... NPR produced a radio drama. It was like an expanded version of Star Wars. It was about five and a half hours long. I was really disappointed with it. I felt like it felt very staged. It felt like it, record, it happened in a recording studio. It didn't happen in outer space. I think that that's, that experience really stuck with me. I always wanted to get at a more naturalistic performance style. I, I was more drawn to movies that had a much more naturalistic feel. And so I thought, well, there's there's got to be a way of working with improvisation in combination with the recording studio that could maximize the potential of both. So on any given episode of The Truth, how much of what we hear is scripted and how much of what we hear is improv? We script it all out. And then what I will do is I'll give the actors these scripted scenes. I always get them to memorize it. And um, and I get actors who really don't want to... Like, like, no one can see me. Why can't I just read it? <laughs> like, uh, and I've gotten, it's like, it caused some problems occasionally. <laughs> we record it like that a few times. And then I do a, uh, a take, a, a, a few takes where they're paraphrasing it. And then I, I'll do things like say, well, surprise each other. And then in the editing of it, I can just pick the moments that actually work for the story. And I found 
that the stuff that I actually end up using in the story almost always comes from the improvised bits. And not even looking at the script anymore, just trying to make a nice little scene out of the, the moments that feel alive. So there you hear him searching for this kind of naturalism in a dialogue, which he works really, really hard to achieve. Talking about getting them off script, and he does lots of improv, and he does lots of takes. Which is not how radio dramas normally recorded, is it? No. Actors tend to have a script in their hand, in front of them, and also they're processed through very quickly. They're reading straight off the script as they perform. But this... Tie, his background ties in with a lot of other people's backgrounds across this scene. So the producers of Limetown came from film. Uh, Eli Horowitz, uh, who's homecoming, he um, was a writer for McSweeney's. Black Tapes, well, one was a comedian, the other came out of film. Casey Whalen was from film. Welcome to Nightville, they came out of off-Broadway uh, theatre. So no one came out of radio. Right, so the second difference, let's talk about that. Uh, it's in the kind of shows that are getting made and who they're being made for. Okay, Lance, I've got the iTunes podcast drama chart open in front of me for the US. I'm going to name the podcast and I want you to see if you can identify the genre. Easy. Number one, Dolores Roach. Horror. The Angel of Vine. Uh, detective. Yes. Uh, number three, Homecoming. Sci-fi thriller. Number four, Imagined Life. No idea. Ooh. Fail. Kind of sci-fi-y, I think. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. Uh, Limetown. Uh, horror. Black Tapes. Horror. Blackwood. Horror. Sandra. Bad sci-fi. Exeter. Oh, you Detective. Yes. yes. And finally, The Truth, which we know. Oh, breaks the mold. But even then, it has a kind of little bit of the genre stuff, especially in the early ones. Yeah. Right, that shows you. I'm basically, there's a lot of genre shows. And that's kind of talking to a very different audience to traditional radio drama. What would you say the traditional audience for radio drama is give, you know, from the BBC, Martin? Well, the, it's, it's ABC one um, middle aged middle class women. <laughs> it is actually. That's what they say in their data. That, um, <laughs> they kind of listen. It's it's women doing housework apparently. Yeah. And and you actually as producers used to they don't do it anymore. You get lists of like at this ju- juncture the audience is doing household chores and needs something to relax. It's like <laughs> right, right household chore drama. And as a producer, you're expected to work with that audience. You couldn't come in and suggest I want to do a dark cannibal horror like you have with Dolores Roach because the audience doesn't want to do ironing and listening to people eating each other. Uh, whereas in podcasting Not in your house maybe <laughs> All right, in yours. But okay, but look, 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 in podcasting, it's different because you can find your own audience. You can decide who your audience are, and they're younger. They're more interested in genre forms. They are all more so more interested in cinema. So they're, that's what they want, not this sort of more tightly defined material that you tend to get from uh, BBC and from radio drama. Okay, so you've got podcast producers producing whatever they want for whatever audience they want. They're younger, they grew up with films, game culture, HBO box sets. Um, So their series kind of feel like those forms. They're longer and they're very genre-driven, right? Also, you get a lot of replication. As we saw, a lot of shows, just me going horror, horror, horror. Mm. In some ways, if that shows copying each other, or in, could we argue that's a movement, that's a particular art form where people are being influenced by the same sort of things and pushing in the same directions. Yeah, you can make that case. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so speaking of genre podcasts, let's look at Casey Whelan and We're Alive, the zombie podcast. 
So Casey and We're Alive fits at least two of the criteria of a podcast drama. And I interviewed KC in Los Angeles, and he talked a lot about cinema. That was his first love. We're Alive is a really important show because it's like a gateway show. It introduced a lot of people f- to, to, to the form. Um, these were people who had no experience of audio drama. They didn't even know it was a thing. It was inconceivable you could tell a story without pictures. But they did love their zombies. They did. And it broke out as a hit show in 2008 when popular culture in America, anyway, was at kind of peak zombie moment. Right. And there, and it was almost like there was a gap for a zombie podcast. It fitted in and it found a huge audience. And now it's like it's over 100 million downloads and is, and is the franchise. So here's a clip from We're Alive. You hear that? How can you hear anything over that alarm? It's getting closer. Come on, stop pulling. Uh, guys? They're coming! Ah, shoot the ones dragging down the barbed wire. I'm trying, damn it! Wait! There's too many! Come on, fire! She's not stopping! Aim for the head! Somebody! Come on, Angel, what the hell are you doing? It's jammed! Yeah, no shit. They're over the fence. Is that the- Get inside. Where? The vault. Move it. Saul, what did you do? Saul, help us the door. We gotta go! Guys! Okay, so that was a clip from We're Alive. And now here's a bit from Casey Wayland, recorded in a hallway. Yeah, with people emptying bins around us <laughs> at a big conference centre. What, you couldn't rent a studio, Lance? Come on. It was Los Angeles. That would have been the budget. <laughs> you got me out there. That was a miracle. Uh, anyway, here's Casey Wayland talking about his influences on his work and his inspirations for We're Alive. When I initially started out doing audio dramas, I didn't see it as... I do now. I saw it as the medium was going to be an opportunity to bring one of my stories to life. I I was trying to, at the time, figure out a way of bringing this this zombie horror survival show to television. At the time, in 2009, there was no Walking Dead, and I thought, oh, this is a great uh, empty spot in the TV lineup, like this would be a great story. So I started developing the uh, We're Alive for that intention, and then uh, it was going to be incredibly hard to get on the air. I mean, I was a small producer, I was a, a student at the time, and I was like, well, I don't think it's ever going to hit the mass market. I'm not going to be able to get to the right person to produce. So I thought, well, if I start doing it as an audio drama, maybe later on I can adapt it or go into television. And then as I started to record it in 2009, it started to fall into place and everything started to click. And I was like, wow, this is a really effective and powerful medium. I started to feel the power of what you could do in audio versus what you could do in video. And and maybe I don't need to go into visuals. Maybe there's something here that can be really explored that is could be possibly even better. Most of my influences actually come from the film side of things where um, you are experiencing an entire story through sound design and things like that. And all my dialogue also, uh, comes from film background. It, it kind of came hand in hand with creating something for audio drama because I had a lot of experience writing screenplays. And instead of showing something, I had to tell you it and find a way of communicating orally through um, through either narration or the dialogue of the characters what's happening in the scene. And I really wanted to uh, mimic movies. I wanted to mimic the sound that everyone experiences from a theater and just find a way to, to bridge the mediums of, of film and the pre-existing audio entertainment. And if I could make them two merge together, I thought that we could bring in like a new um, fascination with the medium and, and get those people who are used to watching movies and love movies, but this is just something else. This is something just a little bit in between a book and a movie. 
What's interesting for me about Casey Whelan's production techniques is he records voices in the same way that you'd record ADR for cinema. That's where you record actors after the scene has been shot doing the audio. Yeah, and you record everyone very close up to Mm -hmm. a very high quality, high diaphragm mic and you get that big cinema sound that's kind of very full. You could say it's artificial, but also it means that that his dialogue cracks through, say, when people are driving cars and things like that. You don't lose its focus. It sounds really nice on hi-fi speakers. And Well, that's the way he th- says that he wants people to listen to um, We're Alive. It's not on earbuds. And it's like you get the full cinematic action movie explosions all around yeah, you experience. In that, in that way, he's a bit of an outlier in podcast land. And you've got to remember, that's a million miles away from the sensibilities of the BBC, isn't it? Where everything's coming out of theatre and it's all dialogue and character and limited action. I think the only person who, from that tradition who comes close to it is Dirk Maggs, who uses sound and music in the same way and has a cinematic approach. And he did never wear a lot work with uh, Neil Gaiman. But prior to that, he kind of got noticed for um, wanting to do big alien invasion things for the BBC and he was the big thing was like I want to make this mm. cinematic so in sound we're alive isn't necessarily typical of a lot of podcast dramas but in the way that it was recorded and the infrastructure around how he put it together that's very much comes out of the podcast drama scene because everything had to be stripped down and done cheaply uh, he was working as a technician at a university and would use their studios in the off time all the actors were working for free initially didn't have a budget but that's typical of a lot of the shows we're talking about that they're have to be recorded in a very limited stripped back fashion because they don't have access to to, to budgets. Yeah. And this means that people use particular formats and framing devices to allow them to make their shows. Framing devices. Hold that thought. So Lance, um, picking up on this idea of framing devices, in the book you talk about podcast drama as not being an immersive experience. What, what do you mean by that and how is that related to framing devices? Right. Well, first of all, let's think about what immersive listening is. So podcast drama sort of fits in a slot between those two experiences. It's more engaged and intimate, as we know. Yeah. Because you're listening on earbuds. My favorite place. Yeah. But it's normally mobile. You're normally moving around a town. You're doing stuff uh, in urban spaces. So you're doing work in the real world, but you're also doing mental work to construct the scenes in the podcast, right? Exactly. You can be like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Mm. and explode the world. What you're actually doing is you're putting all the cost and the weight of creating those effects out of the production and putting it in the hands of the audience. They have a mental cost in terms of the effort that they do to make all these things happen. Okay, so I think a really good example of this, Lance, is from your recent Blood Culture podcast. Yeah, if you listen to this clip here, so it's a techno thriller set in in an evil corporation, but as you listen to this, think about or be conscious of the work you're doing to create these scenes in your mind. Blood has been thrown at the walls of our offices. It runs down the glass in pools thick and red on the concrete below. Do you see that, Luca? Aisha, sit back down. I look out over the atrium, over four floors of workstations and the multitude of desks and screens. Luca, that 
looks like blood running down the building. But no one has noticed. Heads are bent. Faces bathed in monitor glare. Probably, yes, and it's probably a test. No one dare look up. Not today, of all days. A test? Of what? Get back to work, will you? Richard could be here any moment. Richard Dreyer, CEO and founder of Meta Corporation, has given us an hour of his life. An hour in which he will watch us, question us, inspire us, and sometimes fire us. Careers and reputations will be made and lost in the next 60 minutes. Right, as you listen to that, you're hopefully paying close attention and imagining the scene in your mind. And, you know, you've got all the action, all the activities, you're blocking out, you're dressing characters. And that's actually a lot of work to do as you listen. And that means that it's going to be very difficult to listen to that and still be in an urban space. Yeah, and Ella Gray Thomas, one of our producers, put together a piece which illustrates this really nicely. Do I have my keys? Yes, 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 I do. That's good. You know, I've never understood the theme tune for this show. Oh, someone's left the door open. That's really useful. Bye, see you later. Okay, here I go. On Hang on, do I have my phone? Of, oh, God, of course I do. I'm listening to a bloody podcast. Okay, how late am I? Only six minutes, that's fine. I can get to the theatre in that time. And Revelation 2. The mysterious stranger who approached me in the cafe. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. known as Sexy James Bond. Huh? Am I supposed to know who that is? Sexy James Bond. Have I listened to this one before? I don't know. Uh, this is dragging a bit. I think I might jump forward. That's better. I can forward those instances to Nick and we could... Uh-huh, it's a bit with Mr. Stroppy Doctor. Yeah, Alex. Ooh, text from Steve. Ah, oh, my ticket's at the box office. That is good. How dare you, Alex? Hang on, I'll cross here. Don't hit me, don't hit me, don't hit me, don't hit me, don't hit me! Oh, it's alive. Maybe I should text Steve back. No, I'll be there in a minute. Okay, now where on earth do I turn off? Oh, I don't know. Okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick a junction. I'm gonna go this way. It's almost definitely wrong. When I felt like you were being didactic, leading the listener to skepticism. This is a good podcast. I do love any evidence to the contrary. Why do people have to walk so slowly? Most of your explanations. In that particular yeah, case, I really should have been paying attention. I don't know what they're talking about at all now. scientifically possible, so it's fake. I feel like my reporting struck a balance between... Your reporting? You mean your blatant sensationalism? <laughs> That's not... There fake. are more sensationalist I'm podcasts, Dr. Strand. In the last episode, oh, no, wait, I did turn off in the wrong place. Yeah. Oh, it's a bit cold. I really should have brought a scarf. Research indicated some controversy over those ancestors. Okay, I'm definitely listening to this again later, properly in a darkened room with a notepad. Ooh, mysterious. You agreed to let me I have never been to this part. It does not look good. Oh my god, I can smell chips. 
but everything's connected. My wife's disappearance has nothing to do with any of this. How late am I now? Sure. Oh, we 13 need minutes, to that's fine. Possible avenue. Oh, I should probably text Steve back, shouldn't I? What? Oh, no, I'll be there in a minute, it's fine. It's just mystery to draw on your listeners to attract downloads or whatever it is. If Coralie's alive, that changes everything. Tension, 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 tension. Oh, okay, we're getting near to the theater now. I've got to go in and we're getting to an interesting bit. No! Well, I'm not sure it's a I'm right by the door, this is not fair! Okay, well... I guess I'll have to come back to you later, Black Tapes. Goodbye, Alex. Bye, Alex Regan. Urban listening. Listening on the move. Listening as you walk down the street and avoiding dog, dog poos. That's, that's the one I always say. And then, boom, your concentration's gone and you're out of that world you were listening to. Which is why podcast drama kind of lightens the load on the listener. You have a device that stops you having to do half the work. It's not necessarily a narrator who's telling you the story. It's more in the same way that... Well, look, when you listen to Serial... You don't, you don't imagine Sarah sitting in a studio in front of a microphone, do you? Because there is not really a scene, right? And this is the way podcast drama works. It lightens the cognitive load on the audience. So it places a narrator, a reporter, into the story. The f very first radio drama did this, didn't it? Richard Hughes' Comedy of Danger. It was set in a mineshaft, right? Yeah, the very first line of the first ever specifically written radio drama was The Lights Have Gone Out. And mm. it was like this bunch of miners in a mine. And because they couldn't imagine that the audience could picture all the scenes in their head as they happened. So they thought, let's make the audience as blind as the actors. In a way, they sort of made an immersive experience there. Because actually, if you close your eyes, you can imagine that you're part of the scene, yeah. which is quite radical. I don't think a recording of that exists. Kind of in a way, this is what the, especially the Verite podcast is doing, putting you, they're making it feel real and putting you in that situation where you don't have to imagine everything. Yeah, you, they're giving you a reason to be in the scene. Which is why in so much radio drama and now podcast drama, there's this requirement for a framing device. And I'm thinking in particular of what is arguably the most famous radio broadcast of all times, the 1938 Mercury Radio Theater on the Air broadcast by Orson Welles of The War of the Worlds, which starts off with the frame of people listening to radios, to Raymond Raquello and his orchestra on their radios. And what's the biggest podcast drama? That would be Welcome to Night Vale, Which and it's is? the same thing. It's got Cecil, who is the presenter at Night Vale Community Radio, in front of a microphone. So the audience is once again invited to think that they are listening to Cecil on Night Vale Community Radio. Offering you cinema for the ears. Ah, cinema for the ears. That's so many podcast drama producers and podcast makers in general reference. There are lots of references to movies in your head, cinema for the ears. When you're in a cinema, you're in this dark space and you're completely absorbed in the film. And that's sort of what a lot of podcast producers want to recreate. But by setting it up as simply being cinema for the ears, that's not what the form is. It's something else. It's something bigger than that. Because you're just you're suggesting that podcasting is this deficient medium. It's it's mm. it's cinema, but with the pictures cut off. It's missing a sense that should really be there. Whereas actually, the, the whole load of more work is going on because in order to engage with it, you're using a different set of mental processes. Yeah. 
Okay, Lance. So, what is the perfect example in your mind of a podcast drama? I'd say the Black Tates, probably. A serial-esque X-Files investigation yeah. with a Sarah Koenig-style character looking into sort of mysteries to do with the paranormal. It came out very quickly after Serial, was just in the right place at the right time. When I first heard it, I was kind of startled at how close it felt to it. But actually, with retrospect, I've sort of sussed out what it's doing and why it really works and why it's been so successful as a podcast drama. What the show does, and it works in the same way that Night Vale does, in that it calls on our sort of bank of images we have from having grown up with, you know, late 20th century and early 21st century horror films and gothic imagery and things. Yeah, you have this palette of images in your mind and you just kind of pick off the palette and attach to what you're hearing. It's not to say the story isn't complex. It's actually quite, a, uh, you know, there's a lots of layers in the story. Uh, and to that extent, you have to follow it quite closely, mm. but just as you would do with your classic sort of, you know, uh, true crime podcast or something. Another unique thing that you point to in the Black Tapes is the economy of it, the cost implications of it. It was one of my favourite moments of the interviews where I interviewed Paul Bay and Terry Miles. I asked Terry about his production team and Paul kind of burst out laughing in response. Paul was like, yeah, tell him about your production team, Lance. And Terry was like, uh, it's me. <laughs> And I have, sometimes have an assistant. And a computer. And a computer. Hours and hours and hours of ma ma material. And it was basically Terry and Paul writing it together and then Terry going off and doing everything from a home studio and recording everything in situ and no setup. Yeah, and you hear that. Like, the production of these podcasts is really, really lean. Um, uh, and that's why they can put so many episodes out and keep the momentum going for so long, right? 100% true. That's so important. I mean, Bright Sessions was essentially two characters talking in a psychiatrist's room. And that's why she's been able to produce 50 episodes and grow audience. And it's become quite a phenomena, too. So, so let's compare this. You do a lot of work for the BBC. What's the rate for for a 45-minute program of BBC radio drama? Like an afternoon play, that's £16,000. Yeah. So that's like $20,000. And if we do the math, you average typically $1 for 35 listeners. That's what you imagine in podcasting advertising that's revenue. 700,000 listeners. So that's 700,000 listeners per episode. That's right. a lot to make it viable. And that's the kind of harsh truth about funding this material because it's not just what we're doing here two people sat in a microphone and some brilliant producers recording us as we're talking to microphones <laughs> which is relatively cheap because for forecast drama you'd need massive audiences to balance the books to justify that yeah and you couldn't go to a funder and go just to let you know to break even it needs to be mm, the third or fourth biggest hit of all time so do you have Johnny Depp as the lead that's but that's what you end up doing you find yourself having to think about shortcutting to yeah. get success and grow audience in that way so one of the ways that people make this economic situation work for them is to think about licensing deals, right? It's become really clear mm. that that's one of the main ways that people are trying to fund podcasts and things have kind of moved on, that people are using podcasts as a way of trialing out, piloting ideas, yeah. and piloting ideas cheaply before turning them into TV series. Where the real money is. Actually, I think this is a useful juncture for us to really look at what's happened in this scene since we finished the book. And also, let's ask uh, Ella to join us, Ella Gray-Thomas, uh, producer, who's going to have some insight on the podcast scene at the moment. Um, hi, Ella. Thanks for joining us. Hi, uh, Happy to be for your is only youth correspondent for this week. <laughs> um, 
I'll, I'll try and shine a light on what's happening in the world of the kids or the, ki- the youths. Of the youths. Ella, why do you think um, so much change is happening so fast in podcast drama? I think a lot of people are discovering it very quickly who previously weren't aware of it, especially in America and, and in places that aren't. Britain. Yeah. When you think about the podcasts that you've recently picked up in the past year or so, have most of them been American or British or ha- what's your listening like? Um, of the drama ones, they're probably mostly American because that seems to be what is dominating the space. Mm. Uh, the sort of the only English ones that I can think of are Wooden Overcoats, which is, is sort of very Radio 4 inspired. And, and of course, the podcast dramas that come out from the BBC, but obviously those are BBC inspired. Mm. Um, but apart from that, the only exception is Capital. Wow, what's Capital? I, I do not know Capital. What's Capital? Uh, capital is a um, a sort of a sitcom podcast. Really, it's uh, improvised and it's about uh, you know, get this how crazy um, a referendum on capital punishment where the death penalty wins with fifty two percent. A referendum gone wrong? How could um, they possibly have thought of that? Exactly. Um, but yeah, but that feels very different because it's. So obviously not mm. a Radio 4 mm. sitcom and does feel very different stylistically. But apart from that, there's not much coming out of Britain at the moment. And the energy is all in America, which kind of proves my first point kind of right, that the the new the producers of the new form tend to be American and therefore are kind of seeped in that sensibility and, you know, the relationship to screen media. OK, so the producers are still the same. Is the audience still the same? I think they're just entirely different from a Radio 4 drama audience. They're very enthusiastic and very supportive of each other. It seems to be more of a community than just a listenership. And they can be sort of rather fiercely defensive of the form, can't they? If any journalist would write something kind of negative or like... Or just slightly uh, dismissive. Yeah, slightly dismissive about it. Then they, then on Twitter, they, they, just, they, they, they go ballistic. Massive 50-part threads of why this <laughs> okay. is unfair. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So Helen Zaltzman, when we interviewed her, mentioned that the podcast experience was kind of warm and fuzzy. Do you think that's changed? Are podcast audiences becoming more protective of their particular... Thing. They're protective of the form of podcast drama and even what to call it. But interestingly, as a scene, and I don't think that's something I didn't kind of register in the book, is quite how open and supportive the podcast drama scene is. It's very... Um, liberal in its relationship, say, towards progressive ideas about sexuality and gender, isn't it? Yeah, all the all the producers and fans have got pronouns in their in their Twitter People bios. People are conscious yeah. of those issues, aren't they? Do you think there's a kickback against also within that scene against um, Trump and what's happening in America at the moment? Yeah, probably. Maybe it's marginalised communities finding new ways to come together. Because I don't find them very political. No, they're not. And it's almost people go there as a kind of safe space where they can get away from the sheer hell of reality. So one of the things you mentioned, Lance, in the show is this idea of the framing device. And one of my favorite podcast dramas is Limetown, which is all based around um, collected tapes and collected audio. Have we moved on, you think, uh, to a space where framing devices are less important or less necessary? I think any time you kind of set down an idea like that and go, look, I, I think that framing devices are essential to this form. Immediately then texts come up 
that start breaking it. And I think that's what's happened in the last 18 months. Uh, Wolverine the Long Night was actually quite a sophisticated sonic listen. It's been very well received and it's kind of, it's kind of a noteworthy work. Other examples, there was like John Dryden's Tomb and Bay, which is quite traditional in its form. There's no tape recorders in the mm. shot in that. Uh, we mentioned wooden overcoats. Yeah, wooden overcoats. No framing devices at all in that. It's like set in Victorian times or something, so I don't know how they'd managed to work it in unless it was like, I don't know, like a wax cylinder <laughs> that they find. Oh, hang on. Let, cut that out. We can use that. <laughs> um, but the, I don't know. I, I hope that we move away from from framing devices and find more interesting ways of exploring stories. But also, I don't mind framing devices if they're done well, and it's not just doing the same three framing devices over and over again. Um, so, Ella, what kind of new things would you like to see in new podcast drama? Are we missing something out that you think we should be listening to? Well, a thing that I miss a lot from podcast drama at the moment is like comedy it's sort of missing mostly there's a lot of genre work but not a lot of comedy and that seems weird because it's sort of a, such a kind of natural medium for it so I reckon probably if something does go big it'll probably be comedy related but in many ways I would argue that my dad wrote a porno is now drifting in to the world of podcast drama because I'm I am so invested in you know the world of steel's pots and pans right now I can't even tell you how much I want to know what <laughs> happens will will Herr Bish ever be thwarted I just need to know I need to know I I think there's I'd like to hear something that's properly weird yeah and quite surprising and kind of wrong foots the listener and I think one of the problems with opt-in media is that people kind of stay away from being confrontational because of doing so then the listener turns off and then never comes back yeah, again. There's less opportunity for serendipity, for kind of stumbling across something that you don't expect, right? Because you're 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 opting in. Or paying your cinema ticket and realizing you've got to sit through the thing that you've paid in for, even though it's difficult. You know, truly challenging works are quite rare because you can just press, you know, stop and then choose something else. Mm. And I think that's kind of missing. I also think more adaptations might be kind of a good way forward, not only to bring in new audiences, and it might be a way of shaking up the medium and doing interesting things with old stories in a new, I'm, I'm doing air quotes for people who are not in the room as we're recording this podcast. So adaptations of novels or adaptations of know. what? I don't know. Maybe novels or, e or even like old time radio things. So like um, Peggy Hope Doctor from the 1930s or Dick Tracy or... Oh, sorry, wrong number, but with email instead of phones. Oh, wow. That, I could that get would be that. awful, actually. <laughs> Maybe that, that would be an interesting way to bring the history of radio drama and audio drama to the new podcast drama listeners. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that is a new way to explore things. Okay. If, if slightly bad for creativity and new writing. But let's, <laughs> let's sidestep that issue for now. Okay. okay. Um, both of you mentioned Wolverine. So this is like a really interesting thing. It's a podcast of a huge franchise. Was this the breakout moment in podcast drama? I didn't listen to it, and I know no one who listened to it apart from Lance. So I would, <laughs> so I would, I would say that it's not. I don't want to disparage it, but I don't think it's a breakout podcast until my mum knows what it is. Wow! So that's your that's, benchmark. That's the test. I think the next breakout might be a sleeper hit, and actually, it's probably might be happening at the moment, and that's around the RPG podcast scene, 
where you have shows like um, The Adventure Zone and Critical Role, which are building up huge followings, and they fit the kind of format. You know, it's improvised storytelling. Apparently, at um, Comic Con in England recently, the Critical Role, which is one of the big shows, uh, were guests there, and they broke Comic Con. There was just so many <laughs> people trying to get into one hall at the same time to see these people, and I, that seems to be kind of growing quicker and quicker. So maybe it's going to sort of blindside us and come out of that space. Will that become mainstream though or is that another genre thing that remains within the world of the people who like the genre already? Well this comes to the central thing is we're still I mean a long time ago uh, Fred Greenhalgh who's um, used to run Radio Drama Revival, one of the original yeah. podcasts that analyzes the form. He said, look, you know, we're working within a niche, within a niche here. And what, where we are now is I think we're now a niche. Just we're, a niche, okay. Just a niche. We're not mainstream, but at least we've kind of come up one level of nicheness. Random question here that may disrupt things, but <laughs> do we want to become mainstream? Will that ruin the fun? Wow. Like, isn't, isn't niche better? Isn't there more room for play and for creativity rather than in the slap bang of the middle of the mainstream? I think that's the greatest way we could have ended this show, ended unless it. you wanted to come What I was going to say, I was my, my grumpy response is, uh, if, you know, if the scene grows and we can start paying our artists properly at last, and uh, you know, that would be a big breakthrough too. If we can like, get a balance between people being paid and it still being fun, then c- can we have that, please? Thank you. Yeah, not paid too much. Though. Yeah, not too much. <laughs> not enough to keep us humble. We don't want Which them losing is why their humanity. We're not in cinema, and while we're recording this, exactly, because we've you know, got it all slightly. But you wrong. know what? We but we're can, nicer people. We so. are. You are absolutely right. You have been listening to For Your Ears Only. I'm Martin Spinelli. I'm Lance Dan. And I'm Elle Gray Thomas. If any of the issues we've talked about today have made you curious about podcast drama, you can find out loads more in our book, Podcasting the Audio Media Revolution, which is out now from Bloomsbury. And you can follow us on Twitter at... Is Any Podcast. For Your Is Only was produced by Elle Gray Thomas and Jack F. Dewars. This episode was written and presented by Lance Dan and Martin Spinelli, and Martin was also our executive producer. Andrew Duff created our sound, and Rachel Sparks and Ian McKenna were our actors. We had support from Arts Council England, Bloomsbury Publishing, and the School of Media, Film and Music at the University of Sussex, and the School of Media at the University of Brighton. Our distribution was made possible by Reframe of the University of Sussex and Resonance FM. And we had support in our initial interviews from a British Academy Leverhulme Research Grant. For more information, please visit earsonlypodcast.com. <laughs>